Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. This morning I want to speak with you about the parasha known as Ki Titse. This is the parasha beginning in Deuteronomy 21 and continuing through the middle of Deuteronomy chapter 25 that will be read in congregations or studied in congregations throughout the Jewish world. 74 of the Torah's 613 commandments, or in Hebrew, known as mitzvot, are assigned to the parashah ki titzeh. These laws um, include a wonderful variety of laws, but most of them seem to relate to family relations. They include the laws of the beautiful captive. I quote from the text, if a beautiful woman is taken captive in war, you may take her as your wife. However, you must wait a month before you take her so that she may weep, mourn for her mother and father. If you do not take pleasure in her, you must let her go as she wishes and neither sell her for money nor take advantage of her. This parasha also notes the inheritance rights of the firstborn. It tells us about wayward and rebellious children. It speaks very directly to the notion of burial and dignity of the dead. It also speaks about the law of returning a lost object and a very obscure law that relates to the sending away of the mother bird before taking her young from the nest. It speaks to erecting a safety fence around the roof of one's home and the various forms of kileim, forbidden plant and animal hybrids. Also noted are the judicial procedures and penalties for adultery, for the rape or seduction of an unmarried girl, and for a husband who falsely accuses his wife of infidelity. This parasha introduces the notion of Jewish lineage and speaks of who one cannot marry lest you produce uh, a mumzer. <coughs> mumzer is usually translated as bastard, but unlike the English, it is not someone born of two unmarried people, but uh, someone born from an adulterous or incestuous relationship. Our parasha also includes laws governing the purity of the military, the prohibition against turning in an escaped slave, the duty to pay a worker on time and to allow one working for you, man or animal, to have proper treatment. The rest of the parasha continues to speak in this vein, particularly about marriage laws and divorce laws and the 
laws of Leverite marriage. And the parasha, which has been so powerfully um, enunciating marital relationship laws and family relationship laws, concludes with the verse that is well known, and that is, um, remember what Amalek did to you on the road on your way out of Egypt. And it is this last section that I want to spend this morning's show on. Towards the end of the parasha, we read of this commandment to remember the unprovoked attack by the nation of Amalek against the Israelites when they left Egypt. The command comes in the form of the word zahor, remember, which is at the end of the section, but the final words of the verse are lo tishkach, you shall not forget. So we have a bracketed set of verses, remembering and you shall not forget. And the rabbinic commentators have continuously through the ages asked, why is there the need for both expressions? And what is the difference between remembering and not forgetting? Surely one might think that one is superfluous. And it is this usage of both terms that will serve as an opportunity for us to investigate ancient and modern commentaries on this week's parasha. Some commentaries suggest that remember, the word zahor is a command to the Jewish people, while the words al-tishkach, do not forget, would seem to be more of a prediction. They will not let you forget. Should you ever lapse into a false sense of security and forget your Jewishness, the anti-Semites of the world will be there to remind you who you are, a people that dwells alone. According to this commentary, everything has a purpose in creation. There is nothing superfluous in God's world. So what is the purpose of an anti-Semite, one would ask, according to this commentary? Just that, to remind Jews that they are Jewish. But wait, but why wait for the Amalekites of this world to remind us? Do we want or need their taunting? Rather, let us be proactively Jewish, suggests this commentator. Positively Jewish and Jewishly positive. There are a million good reasons, positive reasons, to be proudly Jewish. If 70 years ago being Jewish carried a death sentence in Europe, today it is a life sentence, promising a meaningful and blessed life. And when we decide to live proud, committed Jewish lives, we make a fascinating discovery. When we respect ourselves, the world respects us too. And that applies across the board, from the individual Jew to the collective Jewish community. Well, that is an interesting interpretation to 
massage the word do not forget into a prediction they will not let you forget. But that is not the only way to understand this interesting uh, phraseology. I want to now introduce a uh, second reading from this week's Torah portion and connect it to the Amalekite phrase. Remember that I've been referring initially to verses 17 and 19 of chapter 25. Remember what Amalekite did to you on your journey after you left Egypt. How undeterred by fear of God he surprised you on the march when you were famished and weary and cut down all the stragglers in your rear. Therefore, when the eternal your God grants you safety from all your enemies around you, in the land that the eternal your God is giving you as a hereditary portion, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget it. But previously, in chapter 23, we read the following. No Ammonite or Moabite shall be admitted into the congregation of the eternal. No descendants of such, even in the 10th generation, shall ever be admitted into the congregation of the eternal, because they did not meet you with food and water on your journey after you left Egypt, and because they hired Baam, son of Beor, from Petor Haram Naharim to curse you. But the eternal your God refused to heed Balaam the sorcerer. Instead, the eternal your God turned the curse into a blessing for you. For the eternal your God loves you. You shall never concern yourself with their welfare or benefit as long as you live. You shall not abhor an Ammonite, for such is your kin. You shall not abhor an Egyptian. For you are a stranger in that land. Children born to them may be admitted into the congregation of the eternal in the third generation. So two very different types of commandments. This series of verses from these passages all contain similar content, as you can hear. The Torah introduces a past connection with a particular group and provides instruction of how to interact with that group moving forward. You might recall that moving forward means entering the promised land, as these verses are offered by Moses as he stands with the Israelites overlooking the promised land and recounting for them their journey through the wilderness. These very short verses present a multitude of challenges, from ethical concerns to textual consistency with the rest of the Torah. This is combined with the underlying continuity issue present in all of Deuteronomy, that the people being addressed and reminded of these past experiences are not the generation who actually experienced most of these events. So what is the Torah doing? Why is it speaking like this? Viewed against the background of preparing for the transition to the land of Israel and what today we would call national sovereignty, 
these verses seem to focus on advancing the project of creating a national memory or collective history and thus constructing the basis of national identity. One, of course, only needs to think of the number of people who now use the DNA websites to submit their genetic material in hopes of tracing their ancestors and firming up their lineage. The Torah is trying to create a national identity for the Jewish people as it enters the promised land. In his book, Dr. Zeng Wang, director of the Center for Peace and Conflict Studies, and a professor in the School of Diplomacy and International Relations at Seton Hall University, he argues about the important function of historical memory as a key element in the construction of national identity. Let me quote, ethnic and national or religious identities are built on historical myths that defined who is a group member, what it means to be a group member, and typically who the group's enemies are. These myths are usually based on truth, but are selected or exaggerated in their presentation of history. Historical memory is an identity can shape or influence behaviors in many ways. It could work as a constitutive norm, specifying rules or norms that define a group. Moreover, it constitutes references and comparisons to other groups, especially the ones with historical problems with the group. Third, it affects the way a group interprets and understands the world. Finally, it provides the group with the future roles and tasks to perform. Identities encourage actors to act in accordance with and interpret the world through lenses relating to group purposes. In other words, these short constructions of collective memories in the Torah are used to help fashion and refine the future national narrative the very understanding of who we are and how we interact in the world. In examining these biblical passages and our project of building collective history, what messages might we be embedding in our national memory? Certainly, this is true for peoples besides the covenantal people of Israel, aboriginal people, have national memories. The French of Canada have national memories. Almost every ethnic or religious group has a national memory, and those memories form important aspects of who they are and how they present themselves in the world. So I want to spend some time speaking about the national memories that emerge through (coughs) this week's Torah portion. Lo Tidrosh, do not concern yourselves, is found in Deuteronomy 23.7. 
toward the Ammonite or Moabite, we are commanded to remain indifferent. While the opening of the biblical passage establishes firm separation from these people, and while rabbinic sources greatly amplify the devious and wicked behaviors of these people, they establish, if we read it, distance rather than animosity. Why? Because they greeted us neither with hospitality nor welcomed us peacefully. They do not share our values. Framed positively, this piece of our collective memory guides us to choose allies with whom we align in both morals and practice. Lotitaev, do not abhor. Here the Torah shifts its tone. To the Edomites and Egyptians, we are commanded to remain open. To the Edomites, because they are technically family through Esau, despite some ancient coldness, and to the Egyptians because of their long-standing joint history and perhaps original kindness in providing shelter from famine in the time of Joseph. Although we must remain cautious regarding those with whom we have historical fiction, we must also resist the urge to hate and cultivate the capacity to forgive. Lotishkach, the last part of the parasha, and the one that I mentioned earlier. This short section from Amalek is perhaps one of the most famously confusing commandments in the Torah. We must remember to erase the memory of an entity representing a great and purposeful evil. The idea of Amalek and the commandment to blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven, expressed in this short section, has been used historically and in certain contemporary cases to sanction abhorrent violent actions and dangerous rhetoric by our own people toward others, all of which is inexcusable and unjustifiable. But the text in this section, without the gloss of some additional text in the Bible or rabbinic literature, focuses more on the power and purpose of memory than action. A memory to strive, blot out the heinous conduct demonstrated by Amalek in our collective past, and perhaps work to ensure that no one behaves this way again in the future. In order to blot out the concept of the memory of Amalek from the world, how would one do that? We must act intentionally to eradicate baseless hatred. In the current climate of our reconsideration of racism, xenophobia, hatred, do not forget is the commandment of the Torah, which if actualized means more than remembering. It means to ensure that the Amalekites of the world never have an opportunity to treat others as they once treated us. The Israelites in this portion, in this week's parasha, are slowly trans- 
transitioning and transforming from a newly formed people to a community aligned and defined by national identity based on collective history. As is often the case, the values and tenets that we glean from our collective history can also provide powerful personal instruction. A clarion call to respond to the events of the past six months. A clarion call to align ourselves with those who share our values, to forgive longstanding tensions, and to intentionally eradicate evil and bring light into the world. It is in the midst of all of these mitzvot, a very powerful call to action simply through the words, do not forget. Now, I want to offer you one other interpretation of this anomalistic phrase. Um, we've already looked at one interpretation of remember, do not forget. And they, of course, appear to be oxymoronic. We are told on the one hand, Zachor, remember, and Lotishkach, do not forget. But we are also con commanded to Timche et Zecher, blot out the memory. So how does God in the Torah expect us to do both, to remember and blot out the memory? Zachor seems to be something Jews do naturally. Remember it all. Never forget. We build monuments and museums detailing the darkest times in our people's history so that all humanity will remember what great evil human beings can do. It has become almost an obsession to not forget, especially when eyewitnesses to the Shoah, the Holocaust, are passing away and today's generation once again presumes it could never happen in our lifetime. But what about the other extreme? What if we forget about Zahor and focus as if it never occurred? Holocaust denial is the most obvious illustration. But we face the same temptation in everyday life. Certainly some people wish to forget events in their personal life. Obsession on the one hand, denial on the other. People who have experienced life-threatening illness can often embrace either extreme. They can let their illness define them and surrender to it. Or they can pretend it doesn't exist and allow it to sneak up as the Amalekites did. Of course, neither one alone is an answer. The secret to responding to personal challenges is to understand remembering and not forgetting as a single command. That's what the rabbis did when they selected them as the special reading for the Shabbat Zachor, the remembrance of Shabbat, the Shabbat of remembrance that precedes the spring festivals of Purim, Passover, and Shavuot. When we tell our stories of danger, 
liberation and freedom under God's covenant. And why did the rabbis make this selection to deliver this message? Blot out the memory as it exists as an obstacle to pursuing your goals and dreams. And at the very same time, remember, do not forget. That is the very memory of challenge and triumph that makes you strong and gives your life purpose. Those are personal commandments. To not forget the personal challenges that we've experienced during these times of the pandemic, but also to remember how we've overcome them. Do not forget the challenges. Always remember the responses. So now you would ask, what is it about the Amalekites that was so different that the Torah felt it needed to remind us of their behavior? Well, obviously in Jewish tradition, Amalekite is no longer an individual, but an archetype. After all, the rabbis and commentators of the past years Centuries will use him as the evil prototype of mortal enemies to the Jewish people from Haman to Hitler. But if we take it one step further, perhaps Amalek is no longer an external threat. Rather, let us see Amalekite as representing something inside each one of us. Maybe it's a disease of the mind depression or fear or failure on one hand, arrogance or immodesty on the other. Maybe it's a disease of the body, but maybe Amalek represents the disease that strikes not when we are our most vulnerable, but when we think we're doing okay like the ancient Israelites who had just left slavery and were on the road to freedom. Rashi, the great medieval commentator, describes the stragglers in your rear, as found in chapter 25, verse 18, as those who were enabled, enfeebled, because they had stumbled into sin so that the cloud of God's presence spit them out. And Rabbi Chazika ben Manoach of 13th century France translates the same verse to mean not that a Malachite was undeterred by the fear of God, but rather that he was able to act because the Israelites themselves were undeterred by the fear of God. Had the Israelites kept faith, the Amalekites could not have overtaken them. So these two phrases are not oxymoron, but a comprehensive plan of action. If we obsess on Amalek's hold on us, or if we try to deny his very presence, then the Amalek inside us will win. Only by following the spirit of the Torah to remove Amalek as an obstacle to the rest of our lives and never to forget the battle we have waged against him can we possibly beat him. A more psychological interpretation, but nonetheless a powerful one. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. You can find a podcast of this morning's show on iTunes or on the CHRI website. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I wish you shalom and have a good day. Yeah.